How many of you think you know what I'm going to talk about today? Well, you don't need to raise your hand. It's not hard to figure out. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about Passover. And when we refer to Passover, in, uh, it, it, we generally uh, refer to it, it's a general term that refers to more than just Passover service itself, as does uh, in many cases in the, in the Bible. The term Passover refers to more than just the Passover service. It's a, the Passover season. We, we refer to it on occasion. But it, it's a combination, of, in that sense, of a uh, the specific festival of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And again, as we designate that as uh, Passover season. And we prepare for Passover. We talk about Passover preparation. As we do that, we are, in reality, we're preparing for two very separate feasts. But they are intimately tied one to another. As a result of doing one, we then follow through with doing the second one, doing the other. After taking Passover service, then we also then, the very next night, we begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's the sequence that God gives us in Leviticus 23. And uh, we won't turn there specifically, but we'll, we'll, we'll look at the account in Exodus. So this afternoon, I want to review both of those elements of the Passover season and what we then can e- learn from examining those two elements and see how they are so very connected. First, take a look at the Passover service itself. As we know, it's an annual memorial that we take note of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, out of their their slavery and their captivity. And also we celebrate our personal and individual, and for that matter also our collective deliverance from sin and the penalty of death that is invoked by that sin. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. In verse 1, it says, Then the Eternal said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Eternal. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Then verse 4 says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. So to Moses, God rehearses the covenant that he has made with Abraham and with his son and grandson. rehearses that with them. And therefore, and then it's in verse 6, it's therefore, he tells Moses, say to the children of Israel, I am the Eternal. This is a phrase that resonates a great deal through the book of Exodus, but elsewhere in the Bible is throughout. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Eternal your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the eternal. Again, the phrase, he keeps reminding them, and through Moses and through Aaron, that he is God, and he is the eternal one, the ever-living one. So through Moses, or God, actually through Moses and Aaron, he warns Pharaoh of the various plagues that would come upon them, uh, and apart from the uh, Aaron casting down his rod, turning into a snake, etc., he again know that uh, he went through giving or uh, putting upon them ten individual plagues. I'll disperse them. First two, the Nile River was turned to blood, and then shortly after that, when it didn't, that was not enough to convince him that uh, he should uh, let them go. The frogs came out. And they were everywhere. It's interesting, the account says, in their homes, on their beds, on the people, in their ovens. Uh, It's uh, uh, not a smart place for the frog to go. But uh, anyway, they're there. And even their kneading bowls. Basically, they're they're disrupting every element of their lives. And, of course, the Egyptian uh, magicians could also do that. Now, why they would escapes me. Uh, adding insult to injury, that, but nonetheless they were able to do that. But then we have the others, the box about the plague of lice, the swarms of flies, then even the death of the Egyptian livestock, uh, none of Israel's uh, were killed from the, the plague. Boils on men and beasts uh, were added. The plague of hail, that in, in the open area, that, uh, the death of the men, the animals stripped the trees of, uh, of their leaves. Then had the plague of locust and the plague of darkness. Now, just uh, in terms of uh, thinking how frightening that might be, how many of you ever gone into a cave uh, with subterranean caverns? And the ones I've been in, they always, at one moment, they just turn out the lights. And you literally can't see this hand in front of, of your face, two or three inches away, because it's so black. That, uh, that it is a, understandably for me that it uh, could be a terrifying thing for it to go on as it did, except over in Goshen for the Israelites that had light. And, of course, the last plague was the death, taking the life and death of the, the, the firstborn of men and beasts of Egypt. So God very much humbled the nation of Egypt. Let's turn back to Exodus 10. Just note something. Exodus chapter 10, we'll just and take the read about this, the uh, plague of locust. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locust into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall see the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They fill your, uh, shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So Moses delivering the message, and he says that in, in the comment here that that, uh, that no one will be able to see the face of the earth. The, the locusts will be so so dense. And they're uh, flying around. They wouldn't be able to see. It's like going through a, a snowstorm where it's a whiteout. Then in verse 7, it says, Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? 
let the men go, that they may serve the eternal their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Now, that was before the next three plagues, but they began to, they could, um, the next two plagues, that they could well see that the whole nation had been humbled and destroyed by what was, what was going on. In Exodus 12, and I won't uh, read all of it, uh, refer to it, but here we have the Passover instituted, where God says he is going to protect the Israelites, but he is going to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptian people and of the animals. And the way it would be protected, of course, with the sacrifice that God instituted through Moses, that the lamb, uh, the yearling lamb, a male, male goat or a lamb, would be sacrificed and the blood would be put on the lentils or on the doorpost of the houses. And when the death angel passed through the land, it would pass over all of the Israelites and only on inflict that punishment on the Egyptians themselves. So in chapter 12, verse 21... We'll read that through 27. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves, according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood and in the basin, strike the lintel in the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Eternal will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood... On the lintel and on the two doorpost, the Lord will pass over, the eternal will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the eternal will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Eternal, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So God instituted the Passover at that particular time. And, of course, in that chapter, it also talks about unleavened bread. We'll discuss that a little bit later. And, of course, we know this all started. We go back to Exodus 1. I'll just refer to it that because they were multiplying in numbers, that the, the Pharaoh in particular was literally afraid that they might either join the enemy, uh, rebel, whatever. So he put them into bondage. And the Bible talks about hard physical bondage. And even to the point of trying to kill all the male babies, commanding that they be, they be killed. And God says, I'm going to deal with that. And eventually he kills many of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Let's turn over then to Exodus chapter 20. And I want to refer once more to this phrase, this sentence, that resonates through all this, this story. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Because we know here is the commandments are to be given. But God begins this by in verse 2 by saying, I am the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. A phrase, again, a sentence that God uses 
many, many times to remind Israel, the Israelites, what he had done for them, to establish his authority and his position, stated many times in the Old Testament. God had allowed Satan to influence and harden Pharaoh's heart in an attempt to thwart God's plan of delivering them and continuing with his his plan of salvation down through history. But God did deliver and rescued his people. So what we see here is the mighty hand of the almighty God intervening and taking care of his people to deliver them from this hard bondage. So that's what we, one of the things we celebrate. We remember that, that what God did for ancient Israel. But in a similar fashion, God has allowed Satan to attempt to thwart God's plan spiritually. And that, of course, concerns all of us today. We find similar examples, again, in reference to just talking about the stories in Matthew chapter 2. We have there the story where Herod uh, has all of the male babies, two years and under, killed, that he could find, in an effort to kill this king that was to, to have been born. And not taking any chances, he was two years and under, in effort to make sure that that future king would not live. So Satan had a hand in that in trying to kill the coming Messiah before he had a chance to do what he was, came to do. Matthew chapter 4, we have the example of where Christ is tempted by Satan in a very dramatic way on three very strong temptations in order to get the Savior of the world, who would become the Savior of the world, to get him to make a mistake. Now, it says after that was over, he left him for a while, left him for a season. But it goes without saying that Satan came back many, many times to try to undermine the perfect character and conduct of Jesus Christ. Many times. But how many times would Satan have needed to be successful in a temptation and get Christ to sin to thwart God's plan? Just one. We know that. All it would take is one mistake. And so he set out, I'm sure, many, many times to thwart Christ, to tempt him in various ways, and in sending people to ask questions to try to entrap him to get some sort of wrong reaction. But Christ never failed. And even to the point where he could influence those uh, those individuals, the religious elements of the community, the Pharisees and Sadducees and others, to plot to kill Christ ahead of time, ahead of the point point in time when, when Christ was supposed to die for us. So Satan was a, uh, as we said, if he's a roaring lion after us, can we not think he was exactly the same way, maybe on uh, multiply that by some huge factor, in trying to succeed in getting Christ to sin? But Christ, in due time, at the right time, after living a perfect life, was allowed to be crucified and to die. Let's turn over to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 
And we'll read verses 26 through 31. Here talking about Pilate releasing Barabbas. So then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, which is a, a, a very weak symbol of any kingly authority, a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe of him, put on his own, his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So there was this ignominious treatment of our Messiah, the Savior of mankind, and the mocking of him, and all the things they did to belittle him, to hurt him, to injure him, to make fun of him, and to bring him down in a very human way, to, to make him realize that he was nothing in their eyes, because they were not able to do these things to him. Let's turn back to Isaiah 52, and we just read a couple of these scriptures to remind ourselves of the kind of treatment that Christ had to endure in order for us to have a Savior and to be able to truly celebrate this time of year for our deliverance. In Isaiah 52... Verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, that is his appearance, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Hard for me to quite picture exactly what that means, except that perhaps he was beyond any recognition, that to look at him he would not know that that was, in fact, Jesus Christ other than a just a torn and beaten man. In chapter 53, it says in verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. We know the account from the New Testament where there were people that, prior to this, were glorifying him as he came into Jerusalem. They were praising him, and in a matter of just a couple, a, few, a couple of days, they turned on him. Many of them, the masses, turned on him because they were, I guess, affected by what we today might call mob mentality. Verse four says, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." That these uh, Martin talks the griefs, talks about sicknesses and the sorrows. The margin refers to his pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. It was, we, that he had been actually rejected by God. That we had nothing to do with him. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, and the margin says, blows that cut in. By the wounds. Even the word, and, and Peter talks about the stripes and referring to wounds, the actual cuts. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Eternal has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sins of all of mankind put on the shoulders and on the body of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. What was done to him and the judgment rendered against him wasn't according to existing law. He was wrong. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Verse 10, yet it pleased the eternal to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the eternal shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. Very much referring to the bleeding, the blood, he bled to death. And he was numbered with all the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Christ was put through, in a, really, I think for most of us, an unimaginable beating and torture, hours on end, and those hours, I'm sure, seemed like more than minutes or more than hours, because he was also a man, he was physical, and it hurt. And God allowed him to go through all of that so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. Just like Israel, God had to intervene and with mighty miracles, mighty signs delivered his people physically. And we think about what Christ had to go through even as he grew up, but especially once he was about to start his ministry. And then for about three and a half years, he had to counter Satan at every turn, as well as all of those that were opposing him in the community. Then he had to suffer a tortured and a brutal death. Again, God allowing these things to happen to, let's say, in a mighty way because he is God. I am the eternal who delivered Israel out of the hand of Egypt. And if we think about Egypt as a symbol of sin, then God is telling us at Passover time that I am the Eternal who will deliver you from the bondage of sin. That's why Christ died. As the Creator God, His physical life being perfect and without sin, Christ qualified to become our Savior. Let's look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, just one verse here, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, the burden of all the sins of all mankind, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through his sacrifice, we have the opportunity to become part of the family of God and to become the righteousness of God. We have the same kind of character that the Father and, of course, Jesus Christ have. I'll just refer to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where it talks about Christ as yet 
had no sin or yet without sin. Christ was perfect in the letter and in the spirit of the law. Then in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, and breaking into the middle of the thought, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone since Adam, including all of us, have sinned and fallen way short of God's glory and God's perfection. But through Christ, he says, being justified freely by his grace, by his unmerited pardon. Nothing we did or can do would enable us to deserve that, if you will, undeserved pardon. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, his love, his character. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. And much as we discuss at baptism, and again, the three individuals that were baptized this past week, that they had to recognize that their past included sins. And at baptism, all those sins were blotted out. The past was gone. The record was wiped clean. All made possible through Jesus Christ. I'd like to just read a short paragraph out of our, our book, God's, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan, written by Mr. Meredith. On page 13, he says, The Passover pictures the fact that we are being justified. It's an ongoing process. Present progressive. It starts at, at baptism and goes forward. And Passover is the memorial of that acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Savior. The Passover pictures the fact that we are being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. He re- wrote out that particular verse in his book to remind us of what these holy days represent. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, just another verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, In him there was no sin, or there is no sin. All of this is so much greater than what God, all the miracles he performed, what God did to deliver Israel, what he has done in order to allow us to sit here together and think about the reality that forgiveness is available to us every day. And we commemorate that acceptance of Christ as our Savior at Passover time. And, of course, before Christ instituted, before he died, he instituted the real symbols associated with Passover today. Let's just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. 
Paul writes in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we take that bread and we read the, also, verse 25, he says, he takes this cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We take that small piece of unleavened bread. We take that small spoonful of wine. And we should be thinking about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made and recognize what he did made it possible for us to be forgiven. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That we, by keeping Passover, and for the baptized members, it's, it's not an option. God says to celebrate Passover to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ and our acceptance of that sacrifice. The question is only will we or won't we? And we want to prepare properly for it. I won't go through the scriptures about being unworthy. Humanly speaking, we're not worthy. But the attitude that Christ and the Father instill in us helps us understand these things. And that Christ, what he did for us, then we can take it in good faith and knowing that forgiveness is available to us. So he instituted the bread and the wine. And we know from John's account, he also... Uh, instituted another example of the foot washing, which we also celebrate. But on the very evening of his, before his crucifixion, he went through this. So this is an annual celebration, demonstration that we are continuing to honor the covenant we made with God at baptism. Remembering the vow we had taken, we again renew and reaffirm our acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Savior, when you've been baptized, many of you have attended baptisms, we always ask those questions. Those who are being baptized, have you accepted, have you, have you repented of your sins? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? The answer, of course, is always yes when they're in the water. They've gone through that process. But this is an annual celebration and rehearsal of that covenant we made with God. No doubt. For each one of us, although we don't, we don't have any record of them, maybe one of these days we'll have a chance to figure it out or be told, the kinds of things that God has done for you and me to bring us to the point we are today. The things, the problems he's worked out behind the scenes that we didn't even see. The number of times perhaps we've been protected in dangerous matters, some of which could be our own doing. That God has protected us, taken care of us, and helped us solve our problems. The sermonette that was given earlier where it said that Christ is our our only way out. And one of the things that I talk about at baptism counseling is that there is no problem that God can't solve. Sometimes we may not like the solution because we're still human. But God can solve any of our problems. He can bring us to the point where we are going to be a part of his family. And for all of the example that's so impressive when we read Exodus, what he did for Israel to deliver them, I dare say what he has done for each of us and certainly for all of us collectively. 
that there are miracles un, almost uncountable that we have benefited from because of God doing these things for us and bringing us to a very special time where we can, again, acknowledge that covenant we made with God. So let's consider then the second portion of the Passover season, talking about unleavened bread. So we as God's people, after we've reaffirmed our covenant with God at Passover, that we will continually serve him, we then step into the days of unleavened bread. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll pick it up in verse 28. Paul writes in verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. But if we would judge ourselves... We would not be judged. God would not have to deal with that if we do our part. For when we are judged, we are chastened by the, the Lord. We may not be condemned with the world. So we step into the days of unleavened bread and we continue this process of examining ourselves. At, at baptism, we know we've sinned. We recognize that past is eradicated. And then we begin the process of developing the mind and character of God through the power of the Spirit that he gives us. In Exodus chapter 12, we referred to this earlier. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 11, and thus you shall eat it, referring to the symbols that were implemented and instituted for the physical Passover in Israel. Thus you shall eat it, and with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Eternal's Passover, his festival. And then... In verse 15, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 16, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. So these are the two holy days that are the bookends of the Days of Unleavened Bread. And God tells us here that we are to eat unleavened bread with leavening, baking soda, yeast, whatever the items are, we're not to partake of those things. And that he also tells us in verses 19 and 20, these these seven days are rehearsed again, mentioned. So for seven days we eat unleavened bread. And leavening is used as a type of sin. Well, uh, see a bit of that in the New Testament in a minute. But God says we're to eat unleavened bread, and we are to take leavening out of our homes. 
So in doing that, we clean our homes, we clean our cars, all of our quarters that of our existence. That we take effort to get those substances out of our home. And we can go to great lengths to do that. Sometimes we might do a little, be a little bit over-righteous in some of these things, but it's in each, in each individual's decision on how we do that. But we should certainly take a certain amount of diligence to clean up our homes, clean up our workspaces, and put the leavening out of our homes, because for seven days we're going to be physically rehearsing something that is intended to send us a spiritual message every day. Every time we think about what we're eating. So prior to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we carefully clean and clear out our dwelling of all traces of leavening. And for seven days we eat that. And each time we do, each time we take a bite of that flat bread, now many of us I think have come to like certain pieces, certain kinds. Uh, for the new people, I always recommend the matzos with egg and onion. It's great with <laughs> they're great with uh, with scrambled eggs, and uh, especially if you put enough butter on the bread, uh, fix it up. But anyway, but the egg and onion monsters. But for every time we eat that unleavened bread, I don't think there's any way of mistaking that this is different. Every time it's that crunch reminds us that we are to be doing something spiritually, reflecting on our lives. And putting sin out with the same and maybe even greater diligence to uh, become unleavened spiritually. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, First Corinthians chapter 7. That's the wrong chapter. Chapter chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. It says in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. He's telling the Corinthians that they were not handling a very serious spiritual matter properly. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And that's a physical analogy that a small amount of leavening in a uh, a batch of dough eventually will leaven the entire lump. And he's talking about the fact that leaven, sin, among God's people, by a bad example, can begin to influence and damage spiritually other people, other members of the congregation. So he says, therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Certainly talking about physical matters here. So as you are physically unleavened, pursue what we really intended here is to become spiritually unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We do have the obligation because Christ has died for our to cover our sins. He says then in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast. Let us celebrate the days of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, not with 
old ways of thinking, not with the carnal mind, but nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, with wrongdoing, with sin, resentful attitudes toward others. But we do that properly here, it says, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth, the things that we are supposed to do, that God has revealed to us the true way of righteousness. So we are to practice that physical element of unleavened bread, but that should teach us spiritually what we should be doing. Again, in the book by Mr. Meredith on the Holy Days, and there's just, as we know, just short sections on each one of these festivals. But here on about unleavened bread, on page 19, he writes, For seven days, the number of perfection, true followers of New Testament Christianity are to put leaven out of their homes and off their property. They are to focus on getting completely rid of sin. They are to remind themselves through the observance of these God-commanded actions that they have a continuing responsibility before God to overcome themselves, the world, and Satan, the devil. This is the true meaning of the days of unleavened bread. We should be trying with all of our hearts to put sin out of our lives. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it refers to some fundamentals. And besides those foundational elements, even we had a, a sermon recently by Mr. Smith on the laying on of hands being one of those elements. But along with those six elements that are fundamental elements of doctrine, he tells us after those things that are, are laid, after those foundational elements are part of our lives, he's, we should be going on to perfection, to become spiritually mature, above reproach. And so to continue that process that we started at baptism, but also we rehearsed at Passover with the Days of Eleven Bread, we uh, also renew our efforts in do, with diligence to come out of sin. What are some of the key elements that we are supposed to work on after baptism? And as we examine ourselves during this Passover season, what are just some of the elements that we should think about? And now the list can be long. That's not the purpose of the, the sermon, but just to identify some of them. In Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments given to us. Again in verse 2. He says, I am the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And we want to, transpose, to translate that, if you will, into our spiritual lives. I am the eternal your God who brought you out of sin. I brought you out of the ways of death. And I'm offering to you eternal life. And brought you out of the house of bondage, bondage to sin, and even in the... The telecast, the latest telecast and that, uh, by Mr. Weston talking about the, the slavery of America and Great Britain. But as he points out in that particular telecast, actually the whole world, all nations. I didn't watch all of it last night. My wife watched it, but the 
My office door was open, so I heard a lot of it. I'll uh, get the rest of it later. But out of the house of bondage, out of our bondage to sin, we were slaves to sin, to Satan's way of life. And the first thing he tells us in verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I'm not going to go through the, the other nine, but just ask the question. God tells us that he, under all circumstances, comes first. How well are you and I doing that? I'm sure that fair to say that all of us, at one time or another, we fall short of that. We put ourselves first, what we might want to do. But God says he has to come first. No other gods before the one true God. In Luke chapter 14, one of the discussions we have at baptism counseling, especially, Luke chapter 14 Verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. No other gods before the true God. No member of our family, no relative, no friend, no person, no thing is to come before God. That's the covenant we make at baptism, that we are willing to do that. In verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 27, of course, is talking about the ongoing Christian life. And there are burdens, there are crosses, there are problems, there are challenges that you and I face day in and day out. And God says, and Christ said, that regardless of what that burden is, you can't reverse course. You can't say, I changed my mind. And I've mentioned this before, and I usually do it in the, in the counseling as well. It's just like downloading an application on your phone or on your computer. Before you do that, you have to say, you have to put a yes, you agree, you've read and understand the T's and C's behind that piece of software. And I won't ask for a show of hands because I would probably get none anyway. How many of us read every word of that, of that deal? Well, we don't because it'd be, you know, umpteen pages of stuff we don't even understand to begin with. But it's all in the favor of the people who wrote the software, not, not in our favor. We sort of have the same thing, the same challenge of baptism. God says, I'm not going to tell you everything about the Christian life. I'll just generally warn you there are many, sometimes very severe challenges. But the agreement is that you're going to bear that cross, that burden from here on out, whatever it may be. Ever how many there may be. And just like we put an agreement on that contract to download a piece of software. We don't know our future lives yet. We don't know what will come to pass. We do not know how severe the trials can sometimes be, but we commit ourselves to do that, to survive all of those things, to stay close enough to God with his help, with his spirit, that we will endure every challenge, 
every problem, whatever life and this world may throw our way, we are going to stick to this covenant with God. doesn't matter what the cross may be. In chapter 7, I'm sorry, let's go back to uh, chapter 22 in Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. Talking about this first commandment that God gave us, that he comes, he comes first. In Matthew 22, verse 36, this lawyer comes to him with a question. says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law. Those two items, those two points he's making there are the intended result of obeying all of God's law. Hang all the law and the prophets. Everything the prophets wrote, everything that they recorded, everything they predicted and prophesied, all of these things come down to learning how to live God's way of life. Put him first and treat our fellow human being as we want to be treated. We shall love your neighbor as yourself. We can ask ourselves how well we do that. Again, Passover is not optional. We're going to kneel down and wash one another's feet. Thankfully, this year, we will have Passover together. Last year, many of us, in the, at least in this way, husbands and wives washed one another's feet. It may not have been the only time it's ever happened, but certainly happened in that way, depending on whether or not how sick we may be and the needs may be there. But this year, we will be washing one another's feet. If we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. there can't be someone that we really don't wash their feet, don't want to wash their feet. We have to love each other as brethren, part of the family of God. And do these things as he commanded. And these, these are the things we can ask ourselves. In Matthew chapter 6, another one of the tough ones. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, here in this outline of prayer that Christ gave us to help us structure our prayer and know the kinds of things we should discuss with our God. Their Father, verse 12 says, And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. All of us want forgiveness. That's easy <laughs> to ask someone to forgive, to or ask God to forgive us. We want forgiveness. But he says, forgive us our, our, our errors, our sins, as we forgive others who may have offended us. And in reality, forgiveness is hard. It's part of human nature to hold grudges, to bear ill will, to have long memories about what someone has done that might 
have hurt us, been unpleasant, been unkind. He says we have to forgive. Verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, their offenses to you, if you don't put that behind you, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a tough one. But God lays it down very clearly, the kind of obligations you and I have about this spirit of forgiveness. Because God's spirit is a spirit of forgiveness. It is a spirit of love. And he tells us in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, judge not, condemn not. We don't actually condemn somebody. That means we, we, that we, that we are not able to recognize wrong, recognize sin. But we're not to condemn them for it, that you may, that you won't be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measurement you use, it will be measured back to you. As we may observe wrongdoing by someone. They may re- repent of that that very evening. It's gone in God's eyes. We can ask ourselves, is it gone in ours? And we don't know what has gone on between other individuals and their God and their Savior, Christ. Uh, back in Psalm 119, David writes about these matters. Psalm 119, we'll read a few verses. Psalm 119, we'll read first, verses 1 through 4. Blessed are the undefiled, undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the eternal. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Our diligence, our seeking God with our whole heart, uh, I dare say that some days are better than others. Some days our prayer life is more intent and more intense than others. Our physical frailties and shortcomings, sometimes we don't have, we don't put ourselves into our prayers the way we should. But we should seek Him with our whole heart. And they also, in verse 3, do no iniquity. They walk in His ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. So we are careful. Try to become careful. To avoid all traces of sin. In verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? Or for that matter, anyone. How do we change? How do we overcome? Well, just one, one method here or one, one element of that ability to overcome is by taking heed to your word. Regular Bible study. Remind us of the kinds of things that God expects of us. It's important that we pay heed to God's word. And with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart. I'm trying to make it a very part of me. That I might not sin against you. The more those words out of God's word, the more those words resonate and echo in our minds. 
God can use his spirit to trigger the right thoughts of helping us see that we should not say or do certain things. And with his spirit, have the ability to respond and not do that. Not say those things that, that are not appropriate. Verse 59. Psalm 119, verse 59. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. Exactly what we do before Passover and especially more so after even the days of unleavened bread. To think about our ways, to examine ourselves, see how well we are measuring up to the covenant that we made with God. And lastly, in verse 133. Verse 133 says, direct my steps by your word, by God's revelations in the Bible, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Mr. Weston's point last in the presentation about slavery and being in bondage, talking about the whole world being in bondage to Satan and to sin, he tells us, God tells us here, let no iniquity have dominion over us. We don't want to be dominated and controlled by our human nature any longer. We ask God to give us the ability to not let a bad habit, a weakness continue to overcome those things. Sort of a summary point. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 33, I'll read it, as many of you and some of our, uh, some of our young people with their memory scriptures. I, I imagine all of them marking down one here, <laughs> keeping list of in, uh, this. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that we humanly, the physical things we want many of the things we desperately need in order to survive and continue this physical life, but all these things shall be added to you. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's a good summary of what God expects of us, to put his kingdom first, put God first, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Days of Unleavened Bread, help us see the things that are remaining in our lives that are contrary to God's way of life and the things that we need to eradicate. These two areas of the Passover, the Passover or Passover season, but the Passover itself and the days of unleavened bread, they're really, they're so intertwined that it, it uh, so to speak, it's hard to see where one ends and the other begins. Because there's a sequence to we keep Passover service and the next evening we begin keeping the days of unleavened bread. But what we do during the days of the bread, for, and with what we know every year through sermons, Bible studies, and our own personal study, that's the kind of thing we are doing for weeks before Passover ever gets here. Mentally, spiritually, we are practicing the lesson of unleavened bread, of putting sin out of our lives. It's like the most... The, uh, proverbial chicken or egg, which came first? Well, 
God has to show us our sins first, bring us to repentance, and then we're baptized. But we have to bring forth fruit that is evidence that we have repented. We've changed our lives with his help. His spirit is working with us. And it should, and obviously at baptism, laying on of hands, it's in us. And so we then begin to undertake the spiritual way of life. In reality, what follows the Passover service is also, as I said, what comes before Passover service. The self-examination begins when God calls us, leads us to repentance and baptism, and is what prepares us for Passover service itself and for the Days of Unleavened Bread. And those days are of self-examination, as we discussed, they're aided and supported and strengthened by the fact that we get living out of our homes and for seven days we eat unleavened bread. It is, or it certainly should be, a time of concentrated reflection on our personal and our private lives and what I think should be an honest Maybe I can even say brutally honest self-evaluation of where we stand in serving our God and doing his work to help us come to a point where we recognize the absolute greatness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That we desperately need his spirit. We need for Christ and we need for the Father to come into us through his the spirit, emanates from both of them to help us make the changes that we all need to make in order to be the servants of God. That we are, in fact, above reproach. We are the kind of servants that God can uh, entrust with his power, with his eternal life. This time is a very special time, as I mentioned even in my, my short note yesterday. It's a very sobering time, but it's also tremendously exciting because it reminds us that in spite of our human frailties, We do have a Savior. We have forgiveness. And we can go to God with that. Passover, we'll celebrate that. And then after that, we'll have the Days of Unleavened Bread to continue this pursuit of becoming spiritually mature, the servants of God.